From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another special episode of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today I'm virtually sitting down with actor Jake McDorman, who you've seen in Greek, the show Limitless, Lady Bird, American Sniper, Shameless, and most recently we got to know him as Alan Shepard in the Disney Plus series The Right Stuff. Jake, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me and very, very willing distraction. We are recording this the day before the elections, so hopefully by the time this comes out, the world will still be intact. Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm going to regret saying that. I know. Every time you say anything optimistic, I can only hear it through the filter of horrible regret later. It's not even like, well, hopefully, you know, we'll know the results. I'm like, oh, you're going to eat your words, man. We're not going to know the results for a year. So my first question then, because we are calling these stuck at home specials, other than the fact that it's an election year and, you know, the world has gone crazy. How has quarantine been treating you? Uh, it's. Seems kind of appropriate for such a cataclysmic kind of apocalyptic election cycle to have this once again, like plague vibe leading into it. But I've been pretty good. Look, my immediate friends and family are safe. That's kind of enough for 2020, I think. And I've been in LA the whole time, pretty much. And this is more time than I've spent in LA in a really long time. I shot the show last year, The Right Stuff in Florida. And three shows before that were all in New York. So it's been okay being here. You know, I moved here when I was 16. So I have a huge social circle in LA in those 17 years. People have gone to New York. They've gone all over the place. But I'd say most of them still net here in LA. So even though I can't see them, it feels nice to be insulated in a familiar place. Good that they're nearby, at least. Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of walking outside. That's new since gyms are closed. I've been taking baths. That's a huge development for me. Never was a bath guy. All about the self-care. It's all about me time. (laughs) And a lot of podcasts, honestly. A ton of podcasts. So I'm having to overcome the meta hurdles of now being a listener of so many podcasts giving this interview and not judging myself as a listener right now of like, is this a podcast I listen to with this guest Interesting. or not? You, apart from you, is going to love this podcast. I hope that me loves that podcast. Okay, so let's talk about The Right Stuff, which is on Disney Plus and will have released six episodes by the time this episode comes out. Okay. In my mind, the fun part of being an actor is getting to explore all of these lives that are so far away from our own. And it's such a fantasy of so many people to be an astronaut. So what was it like stepping into those shoes of someone who's going to space? Yeah, it is. I'd say that's true. Depending on what the role is, depending on what the project is, you might pick up a special skill here and there. And getting to actually put on a spacesuit and sit in the space capsules definitely has like a little bit of wish fulfillment for a younger person. I think most kids at some point imagine being an astronaut. So that was definitely part of it. But for this story that The Right Stuff is about, it's an adaptation of a book. And then that book was adapted into a movie in the 1980s. But I hadn't read or seen the book of the movie. So this was all an educational experience for me. And there's clearly not a shortage of research to do about this period in American history, right? You already have a book and a movie about it, but just the whole entire world was watching the space race. And I think for me, and probably people in my generation, especially people in younger generations are so familiar with Apollo, Apollo 11 and Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins, those guys landing on the moon, the Mercury program, and even the Gemini program are kind of untold stories, even though they have been adapted many times, but a book, they're a movie. It's still to me, when I came into the project, I had really only heard of John Glenn as far as the Mercury 7. And so to get to start to learn about this is definitely one of the perks of a job that you immerse yourself and hopefully you've got a good script, which was something that we had from the get-go. Mark Lafferty wrote such a great first episode and subsequent episodes. But you know, when we were auditioning, we only had that first episode and it provided this kind of... It was like, since I hadn't read the book and seen the movie, my introduction to the project was the script. And I know there's other actors on our show that were obsessed with the book, were obsessed with the movie coming in. But I was grateful not to have Ed Harris's performance, Scott Glenn's performance, sitting on my back, judging me through the entire pre-production process. I kind of got to go in with the framework of our script is the version of these men and the version of these stories that we're telling. 
and then go out extracurricular and pull in all the research that I felt helped me as an actor believe that I was of the time period and of the ilk of the kind of people that do this and apply it where it belonged in the established framework of our script. What kind of stuff do you use as inspiration for characters? Do you kind of dive into other mediums? You know, it's weird. It's I'd say it's different every single project. One of the more unique aspects of a project like this is that it's period. And it is a highly publicized period of American history. So that provides different things that you can draw on. It also provides some restrictions. You don't have this blank canvas of who you just are going to decide your character of this person is. There's some clear outlines and limits based on who he is as the reality. But as far as pulling in other mediums, I don't know. Probably. One thing that we got to do when we were in Florida. So we shot this whole thing in Florida, right? I always really like shooting on location. It kind of takes you out of your like routine and puts you in a weird porn place for like the sole purpose of making a movie or making a TV show. So we did that with this project when we were in Cape Canaveral, Florida and Orlando, right where these events actually happened. And apart from all the books we read leading up to production and apart from news footage, podcasts, interviews with these actual people, we got to go talk to some of the astronauts who idolized and had met these people in real life. So they had a lot of insight, just anecdotally, about, oh, when I met Shepard, you know, he was playing on a golf course in Orlando and told me to get fucked when I asked him for an autograph, you know, and like little <laughs> things like that, where you start to peripherally piece in, well, okay, well, he was a little like this, or he was a little like that, or a story about him, you know, buying drinks for everybody at the bar at the Naval Lounge, and stuff like that. I guess, apart from the like, hard record of what happened, you'd get little pieces of info like that that came from just talking to people at NASA, talking to people who lived in the area. How long did you get to be in the area before you had to be on set? Pretty long time. I know one of the actors, Colin O'Donoghue, who plays Gordon Cooper, he actually was replacing another cast member that for a variety of different reasons wasn't able to do it. So he really had like zero time, which I've been in that position before. I did a movie called American Sniper. And it was something like you get cast Friday, you're in Morocco Monday, you're on set with Clint Eastwood on Tuesday, and you're just like, all right. Holy crap. So that has its own set of challenges and benefits. But um, for most of us, I think we were in Florida probably for maybe two and a half or three weeks, which is a good amount of time for how fast TV shows move now. And I took a road trip from LA to Florida instead of letting them fly me. I wanted to drive just because, as I said earlier, like I've shot so many different projects in New York, this one in Florida, some in Toronto, and you run the risk of your life getting whipped up into a frenzy preparing to move somewhere for six months. You get on the plane, you land, you're slammed right into the frenzy of unpacking and kind of getting your footing before you start. That I thought maybe a road trip cross country would be a way to kind of unwind that time and slow me down by force. So on that road trip, along with the time we had in Florida, was the period of time that I used to kind of steep myself in the research, to read the book, to read the biography of Shepard called Light This Candle, which is really interesting because he's one of the only astronauts that didn't write his biography. It wasn't an autobiography. It was an actual biography written after he had died. So it had a really objective look at the man. And then obviously just familiarize yourself with, you know, your take on the character and mannerisms and stuff like that. So it was, it was nice to have that time. I think any more than that would have been too much time. And any less than that would have been too fast. The Goldilocks of time to prepare. In the show, we get to see the astronauts going through training. Did you do the training? We did some of it. I, I mean, like we didn't do as much as I know all of us would have liked to do. I mean, we would have wanted to do all this stuff, like zero gravity vomit comets. We would have wanted to do the thing that goes round and round and round to simulate G4. I mean, we would have done anything. It's probably really hard to ensure, you know, a cast of seven regulars, at least, being spun around at high velocity. There was a spinny thing, though, right? Yes. Yeah, so that's called the Mastiff. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Don't worry, we're getting to the spinny thing. The spinny thing is called the Mastiff. And what the spinny thing does is spin, which I guess you could you'd call that yaw. And then it also pitches forward and rolls to simulate an aircraft spinning out of control. So me and Colin got to do that. The other astronauts or actors did not get to do that. And Colin was supposed to be, his character in the script was supposed to be very adept at it. And because of my character in the real life, Alan Shepard had me, it's Meniere's disease, an inner ear problem. In the script, Shepard has a serious problem with it. It throws him off and he has to flip the chicken switches, what they call it, where you just kind of emergency stop, which worked out great for me because I had no experience and I was naturally pretty awful at it. So I didn't really have to do much. I just had to sit there, get thrown around 
and suffer for about 12 hours of shooting on camera. Oh, wow. And it looked great. It did look great. So it was a great day on set is what you're It's a great day on set. I ate very little that day. I was warned not to eat anything. I did not heed those warnings at the first half of the day. Uh Very much heeded those warnings at the last half of the day. I want to go back to the casting process because I know originally you weren't being called in for Alan Shepard, right? Yeah. Actually, I was being called in for um, Gordon Cooper, the role that Colin had played. And it had been a minute since I had auditioned. I was on a show for a year before that. And so being on that show, I was really unavailable to be on anything else. So it just had been a minute since I auditioned, which is like a different rhythm to get into auditioning. And you get into it, or you hopefully snap into it after you get a few in a row to kind of warm yourself back into the process and be like, all right, you're going in and you're making choices that broadcast who the character is in a short amount of time, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? But I hadn't done that in like a minute. And so I got called in for Gordo. I think there was an actor in mind to play Shepard at the time. So when I read the script, I was pretty honed in on Gordon Cooper. I wasn't even thinking about Shepard. And I went in and really thought I did bad, which I know is just such a trite thing to hear an actor say, but it's real when you're halfway through and you're like, this is very bad. And I was very much in that place. I had actually just flown back. So this was last year, 2019. I had just flown back to LA to test for this right after shooting some of HBO's Watchmen. So I was on an episode of Watchmen and they had to dye my hair bleach blonde. And it was long (laughs) and they'd given it like a 1920s parted haircut. And so all my actor friends that were back in LA had, had auditioned for the right stuff and I was hearing all about it. So I flew in to test for it. And not only was I out of shape auditioning, I just looked like Targaryen trailer trash or something, (laughs) which is great because the director that was supposed to direct our pilot at first was David Nutter, who I had worked with on Shameless, but he directed X amount of episodes of Game of Thrones. So I think he dubbed me a white trash Targaryen when I walked in. So I had this audition that felt really funky and weird and walked out just kicking myself and called my agents and said, you should drop me. It was terrible. And they <laughs> called them back. And before I could even get to my car in the parking lot at Warner Brothers, they were like, no, tell them to come on back. Which at that point, I thought my agents had been like, oh, he thought he did bad. He'll come right back in and do it again, which was not what I was saying. I was confiding in them that I was probably never going to act again, let alone 15 minutes from now in the same room that I thought I bombed in. So I like went back in there, kicking and screaming, so embarrassed, thinking that I was going to be asked to like try again, which that happens. I've called them like, that was a mess. Let me do it again. Then you make a self tape or you go in again. But that's not what this call was at all. It was like, I never want to see those people again. This was a nightmare situation for me. Why did you think it was so bad? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I think if you ask any actor, just going a while without having a typical audition, like already an audition is just a weird thing to do. You can have some where you feel like you nailed it and you don't hear anything. You can have one where you think you did terrible and you get the job. So you're not the most trustworthy barometer all the time. It was just that, I think. And there was an accent for Gordon Cooper. He's from, I believe, Oklahoma. And I was just coming from a job where I was doing a transatlantic accent. And so I had accent traffic in my mouth. <laughs> and like it was, and then I looked like an idiot with the blonde hair. It was a lot of stuff. There's a lot of things you happening. You felt really good about yourself. Yeah, exactly. It just wasn't, didn't feel like something that was as important as this job. You know, it's Nat Geo and David Nutter and Happy and Way, DiCaprio's kind of a great script, you know, and you walk in there and you want to make sure it's your best foot forward. It just didn't feel like that. So they called me back in and sat me down to tell me, like, we, think maybe you don't make the best Gordon Cooper, but what do you think about playing Alan Shepard? So that was a really unique audition experience, one that you might hear about where you think you did bad and they call you and offer you another job. So it took me a minute to really wrap my head around what they were telling me. And also, like I said, there was another actor in the role of Alan Shepard when I read the script the first time. So I had to like replay the script in my mind, even kind of hone in on who they were talking about. But it was very exciting. And they kind of mapped out the entire arc between Shepard and Glenn. And I think the next day, the actual official offer came through. That doesn't happen often, obviously. Was it a conversation? That's it? Or did they have you go out and like read sides? No, absolutely. It's just a conversation. You know, David didn't end up directing our pilot. Chris Long did our pilot. Chris Long's great. 
But at the time, it was David. And David and I had worked together on Shameless. So we knew each other. We had worked together before. And they had seen some of my other work and then seen the audition that I just gave for Gordo, which I think, according to what they told me, was the indicator that it was less about maybe not being a competent audition. It was like, oh, this has more of the traits of this character than that. So no, I didn't have to read for Shepard. That's a great experience, but it also has weird consequences with it too. Never going to hear an actor complain about being offered a role, but let me. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Since I'm not used to that, I'm still very much an actor that was part of the audition process and vies for roles that are competitive. It's just a shift of pace to um, all of a sudden have one that you never had that kind of experiment with. Like if you think of an audition as a chance for not just them to experiment with this actor in a role, it's also your personal experiment to try the role on. And even though it is uncomfortable, you're not on a set, you're not in the wardrobe and all the pitfalls that come with the audition process are still there baseline, you start to either make a connection with that character or you don't. And then you get a callback and you tweak it a little bit and then maybe another call after that. So there's a process that you start to at least get the roots in the ground of the choices I think you'd make that feel right and wrong in that character. Whereas if it's just, we trust you, we'll see you on set. It's just a different kind of ballgame. So that's what this was. And obviously, this for me, at least, way more research went into this and having a template of the real guy and reconciling that with the version of the guy in the script was a fun, terrifying, exciting process and getting the voice down. And, you know, I don't have anybody in the military in my immediate family. So just reintroducing that chain of command in your mind, posture, mannerisms, things like that. But all that had to be worked out to basically test run on the first day of shooting. And that was different. Was there a rehearsal process at all, or you just showed up on set and had to work it out? There really wasn't. Luckily, we've got a cast of actors that all love the process. They love the filmmaking process. We all have a tremendous amount of respect for what a team effort it is to bring script to life, cast and crew alike. And so, no, there wasn't a big pre-production rehearsal phase. A lot of that was because our first episode was thrown into a little bit of turbulence because we lost our director. So there was a little bit of a scramble at the beginning, which all the other things that had to be squared away before shooting on day one. Rehearsal was just something that kind of had to fall to the wayside because of scheduling. But as we got further into the series and realized that everybody we were working with, Patrick Adams and Colin and Micah, all the rest of the guys, we started rehearsing on our own time. So episode five, there's this big confrontation between John Glenn and Alan Shepard. It's something that Mark Lafferty, our showrunner, told Patrick and I about, honestly, from day one, even when they pitched the role to me in that bad audition, right? He had said, Okay, so Shepard's story is this. It's this rivalry between these two men. And that scene ended up being 12 pages long. We spent an entire day filming it. And because we had, at that point, worked together on uh, episodes one through four, and we're familiar with each other's processes as actors on our own time, Patrick and I, because we knew how under the gun the production was, we would meet at his house and rehearse that scene and rehearse that scene, rehearse that scene until we really had it down pat and we're ready to just come out of the gate swinging. It's also one of those scenes, it's 12 pages long. It's an entire 12 hour shoot. And all the astronauts are in the scene basically watching Patrick and I have our little spat. (laughs) So you want to make sure for your fellow actor, you've got that scene down. So um, there wasn't as much rehearsal before the first episode, but as we got into production, a lot of us relied on our own time to, to make sure we had big scenes down. Did you shoot the whole show chronologically? No, actually. In fact, that episode five that I'm referring to with that big fight, we shot that last. The episode order was shuffled around a few times because of different directors' availability. We would block shoot a couple of episodes together. I want to say we did episode one, and then we did episode two. Then three and four were block shot, and then six and seven. I can't remember exactly, but we did jump around quite a bit. And the one I remember the most, because it did have that big fight in it, was episode five, which we shot last, which was great. Because by that point, this big penultimate blowout between these two astronauts, we had had the maximum amount of experience working together by that point. So we could get the maximum result in spending some extra time rehearsing it. But we were still reshooting scenes from even episode one, right into like the last week of shooting. It's just a big show. And the VFX take a long time to be complete. So even in post, I know that we would lock episodes out of order because they'd still be trying to finish VFX on episode one. 
after they locked episode seven. So there was some moving around. I think for the most part, it was chronological with except episode five. When did you feel like you found Shepard if the first day was kind of shaky? The last day. <laughs> it's always the last day. <laughs> it's always the last day of the entire project where you go, oh, okay, let's do it again, but for real this time. <laughs> I don't know. No, I think it was definitely a process. We had to do some ADR during the pandemic, right? So they would send us these episodes and you'd have to convert your closet into an ADR studio. So during that process, I really watched these episodes a lot. And kind of similar to the audition process, there were scenes that I remember thinking, man, I really found him there. And then I'd watch them after the fact and be like, oh, maybe not so much. And then ones that I kind of discredited that then I'd see later and be like, wow, that was really on point. So it's always kind of a guessing game. But I think probably around episode four, I felt pretty locked in. It was like a, a holiday episode. You introduce Shepard's storyline. You have his dad come home and there's some serious tension between he and his father. And I think just emotionally, seeing that other side of someone that otherwise is such a kind of a mad dog fighter jock, you know, seeing this side of him that you maybe understand why he can be so icy to certain people or expect unrealistic high standard for everybody else and himself. You kind of get where that stems from when you meet his dad. So I'd say probably, if I'm being honest, that's when most of the permanent decisions on who he was as a character settled in. And then also, I mean, it's just a process, you know, and I think we were all grateful to have such a good script to kind of latch on to. But it really is trying things out. Those first couple episodes, the scene, it seems to work right. The scene, it doesn't seem quite on point. And you just kind of fine tune those aspects, like the tenor of your voice and just getting used to kind of the rhythm of someone else's speech and even like the deliberate way that somebody speaks when they've come from a military upbringing is so different than anything that I come from. And getting used to that gruff edge that you put on everything just takes some time. So yeah, I'd say uh, episode four. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. So much of the show focuses on balancing public image versus human flaws, mm -hmm. but also talks about how like everything being done is done for the good of the country. Between the public image and the human flaws, what makes a hero? You know, I think there's an integrity, I would have to say, that even though these people are human and they are flawed, they're rising to the occasion of something that's much larger than any of those flaws. It was very important for the space program at that point in American history to project an image of moral superiority, cohesion amongst the astronauts, kind of an infallibility of these seven guys, and use that as the portrait of what a hero is. But I think watching them struggle with this overnight international level of fame maybe only on par with the Beatles at the time or Elvis. Navigating that when they really didn't have the tools to do so, especially because the people in their field that they idolized, people like Chuck Yeager, people like Charles Lindbergh, you know, they were people that were famous within their community because they had accomplished something, you know, Charles Lindbergh going from New York to Paris and Yeager breaking the sound barrier. These guys all of a sudden became famous before they'd even done anything. And uh, I think to rise to the occasion and try to navigate that to the detriment of a lot of these guys' family lives and home lives and privacy, just being an ordinary person doing something extraordinary, I think is heroic, you know? It's a pretty big question to find a hero. <laughs> but uh, in this context, I mean, that was at least from my experience learning more about these people and learning more about their families because you could put them in that category too. It was a Herculean heroic effort to maintain any semblance of normal when you've got a member of the family vying to strap themselves to a rocket and blast off into space under public scrutiny worldwide. What do you think is the feeling of strapping yourself to a rocket and flying off into space? 
I don't know. Mine was pretty anticlimactic, to be honest. It was way towards the end of the shoot. We were all ready to go home, and I did not have mission control in my year. I had all of us wanting to finally say we had done it. I have no idea. I know some of us on the show are really excited to find out. You know, Patrick Adams is trying to get his pilot's license right now in 2020. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it really inspired him in particular to try to figure out what that feels like. But man, I don't know. I have to imagine it just feels like everything is going wrong. I saw a documentary once and I can't remember the name of it. But they interview astronauts that had been to space. Buzz is on there, Michael Collins and other guys. They talk about, you know, you think of a rocket and you're strapped in and you're on your back, right? And then it blows and you go up and you think, oh, you're just going to be shooting straight into the air with all those Gs. They talk about how like, no, it has this feeling of like, if you've ever tried to balance a baseball bat in the palm of your hand, you know, you have to keep moving your hand around to keep it up. It has that sensation under it, which I don't know how technical this is or not. And if there's any astronauts listening, they're going to be like, fucking actor. <laughs> but that stuck out as like the sensation just immediately did not feel as is how you would expect. I don't know how true that is now with things like SpaceX and just leaps and bounds and technology from the Mercury program or the Apollo program to like the shuttle program, right? But that always stuck out at me in some of my research is like, oh, that image, because I feel like everyone's tried to do that, you know, balance a baseball bat. And you're like, oh, right, you have to constantly move it around. It feels like if you were strapped to the tip top of that baseball bat, it'd feel like you were going all over the place. Yeah, not natural, I guess. <laughs> A human being isn't supposed to feel good being shot out of the world that we live in. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> this was not intended by most laws of nature. So I want to go all the way back because you mentioned you came to Los Angeles when you were 16. Is that what you said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know you took classes when you were young, but you never went through any professional training. So your training was really on the job. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'd say that's right. I definitely had extracurricular training I went to a public school in Texas. It was a magnet school. They had a theater program. I can't remember if they had a theater magnet. They also had a communications magnet that I was in that was about video editing and stuff like that. But I wasn't in any of those programs in school. I was in acting classes outside of school that had been recommended to me through an agent that I was trying to sign with. And those classes were my first introduction to the craft of acting and knowing what that was beyond kind of what you see in a movie or television. Some Meisner techniques, and then also just some kitchen sink techniques, you know. Through somebody I met in that class, I was able to meet out in LA, an agent, the manager that agreed to have me on for a pilot season, which I don't know people listening now what that is anymore. I think it still exists. It's kind of all year round now. Like this was a huge event that people would flock to LA from January to May, I guess would be the whole breadth of it to try to get on any number of hundreds of pilots that were casting on the major networks. I mean, now with like streaming and cable, it's all year round more or less. But yeah, anyway, they agreed to take me on and give me a shot for one of those pilot seasons. So neither of my parents were in the uh, entertainment industry. So it was very much my thing. And they were really supportive of it. And so they did everything they could to vet this idea with the people in LA, vet this idea with my acting coaches in Texas. I think they'd been doing that. You know, this is something that at that point, 16, I'd probably been really serious about it and known what serious about it looked like for maybe three years. So it wasn't just something that I came home one day and, you know, heard something in class that I wanted to do. It was a conversation that was ongoing with kind of the verbal referrals of the coaches that I was working with in Texas. So they found a way to make it work. When I was 16, that would have been 2003. That was our first pilot season at that point because I was a minor. I had to come out with my mom and my younger sister. And my dad stayed back. My parents are still together. And he stayed back in Texas, tested for some things, and then finally got a co-star role in a pilot that turned into one more episode once it got picked up. So it was recurring. And that was on the WB. Do you remember the WB? The Singing Frog before the CW. So that was my first job. And I think it was enough of a sign paired with the fact that I had tested for some bigger roles and stuff. I didn't get them, but I had at least gotten in the room there that it was enough of a signal to my representation at the time and my parents to say, let's make a go of this. And then the next pilot season, I was 17 and I got on my first show to get picked up as a regular. And that was quintuplets? Yes, it was on Fox with Andy Richter. I mean, I was a huge Conan fan growing up. So I was just beside myself. Couldn't believe it. I mean, yeah, I was sitting in public school, same public school district from kindergarten, 
all the way to when I stopped going so I could come out to LA. I think my last year in school was my sophomore year. I was all of a sudden now walking on to Warner Brothers lot, a universal audition. So it was just such a dream come true to even try at that age. The first pilot season, I think a few of those things I tested for. One was like Norm MacDonald, somebody that I just idolized at the time. And I like didn't say anything at all. I was so nervous. So next year I was like, I might never see those people again. I got to start speaking up. And like, first thing I did in my chemistry with Andy Richter was just like vomit praise all over him from watching Conan and like citing the exact sketches from Conan that I loved and was really doing it under the auspices of my 17 year old brain being like, you're not going to get this and you're never going to see him again. So just who cares? So the word of advice is to tell everyone to just praise. Yeah, Yeah, you heard it here first. Just hero worship shamelessly. Anybody you meet. And that's the key to success in Hollywood. Appeal to every actor's ego and you're going to make it really far. I mean, I did do that. And uh, he ended up playing, you know, my dad and we did like a full season of that. And that was enough at that point for me to kind of get out there on my own. I guess I would have turned 18 in doing that show. And so at that point, I was out here on my own and had the stability from a season of that show to carry me through. So... You didn't go to college, but you did do Greek. Yeah. I loved that show. Oh, good. Was that like a college experience for you at all? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. Greek's kind of like the right stuff. When the cast is an ensemble like that, you build a tight-knit family amongst the actors. And that show was like that. So, you know, if you're talking about brotherhood or sisterhood and the fraternity, I'm sure we could relate to that and navigating an experience that was unique to us. And honestly, out of any show that I've worked on, we're all still super close. Scott, who played... Cappy's got like a foster lives down the street, literally watered his plants the other day. I think I'm watching the election with PJ, who played Calvin, because we're kind of both political junkies. And so we're going to Grant and Barrett together tomorrow. So yeah, we're all still super close. So I guess so. You know, I don't know. I didn't go to college, so I can't really say, you know, exactly if that's accurate. But, but you got to pretend to do the parties, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Or do the parties. I don't know how you shot the show. Maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> It was a wild time. So then, Shameless, you mentioned it's a very different feel from the other shows you had done, right? Yeah. It was a big, I don't want to say grown-up step up, but a grown-up step up. No, I think I think that's right. Talking about coming out from high school and then being on set, you know, at that point, probably I'd say the first three, four years of working in LA, you're just so grateful to work in LA. You're grateful to be on a set. You're grateful to have an agent, have a job. And it's not like that gratitude fades or goes away at all. But I think at a certain point, at least for me, you start to carve out enough experience and confidence in your work and your appreciation for the work and the process and your relationship to your craft just kind of matures over time that I started wanting to do kind of exactly what you said. If I could move into territory of projects that I was a fan of, that I was watching, work with people that I had admired their work from the time I was a little kid, like John Wells, Bill Macy, even Emmy, and just a show like Shameless on a uh, cable network like Showtime that has these other exciting shows like Ray Donovan and you know shows that I'd be watching at the time was really where my heart was. And it's a scary step. And I was really fortunate to have a supportive representation because you kind of start to have to turn down things that you know you're a shoe in for based on your catalog of work previous and start to get ambitious about roles that people may not see you that way that are also just going to be really competitive because they're on shows and networks that everybody wants to be on. That's not to say that the work that I had done, say if you use Shameless as a barometer, that those shows before weren't shows that I was proud to be a part of and that were invaluable to me as an actor. They were. But I think you just, there was a shift in, well, I want to take some of this agency back where I can't which is not always possible as an actor. In fact, it's it's rarely possible, especially at that point. And it's just saying, you know, I've got enough stability that I can narrow my focus a little bit more and and say no to some things that I might have previously said yes to and really go after some more competitive roles. It is a shift and it's one that I kind of needed everybody on my team on the same page. And so I had some meetings with them. And this goes beyond shameless. This was like a meeting that took place just about trajectory in general to go like, let's really go for these things. I trust the taste of my team implicitly. There are people who have represented me for a really long time and they know the kind of work that I want to do. They know the kind of actor I want to be. They know the kind of actors and directors and producers that I look up to and admire. And they share that same enthusiasm about that community in Hollywood. So it was a team effort to say, let's start to move 
this momentum even incrementally into a more focused direction. And Shameless was one of the first projects, I think, that gave back some of that validation of like, you can play at that level. You can play with these guys. You can learn from these people. People like Bill, people like John Wells, Mark Mayron, even um, David Nevins was at Showtime by then. And David Nevins was one of the people at Imagine Entertainment for Quintuplets. So it was actually kind of crazy to work on Shameless and be reunited with David like that. It was important. And I learned a hell of a lot. And most of my scenes were with Emmy on that show. And she's tremendous. And it inevitably makes you better when you work with someone tremendous. And so, yeah, I really, really, really loved my time on that show with all those people. Not only them, but you've worked across some phenomenal actors. And are there any stories from like the big people who you've kind of stolen from them or learned from them? Oh, yeah, for sure. There's a lot. But I'd say Bradley Cooper, he's such a hard worker. He's such a diligent worker that is like humbled by the process. You know, I met him on American Sniper, which all of us were humbled to be on that movie, including Bradley. I mean, that was one of the things that made him so accessible as a co-star and even just as a human being that he was clearly one of our leads on that movie. I mean, he was carrying the movie on his shoulders, but he'd still come back to the rest of the cast and have moments of being like, you fucking believe we're working in Clint Eastwood. You know, which is kind of a great way to meet someone like Brad, because it really made him feel like one of us. And that, that if there was any kind of barrier there, that, that was knocked down, which was important for that movie about a team of Navy SEALs and brotherhood there. But it was also just important for being able to relate actor to actor. So to get back to your question, I mean, one of the things that he was so good at, and he's had a similar career as a lot of actors that I'm friends with, where you know he got out of actor studio and kind of got these bit parts. He was in like Jack and Bobby on the CW, you know, he'd have a part on Sex in the City and he'd have a show like Kitchen Confidential and it get canceled, you know, like, so he had that kind of journeyman evolution. So you felt like he got it. Let's freshen his mind those days, like waiting in line at auditions and blowing a test or something like that. So Bradley, very relatable. And then he was always key in reminding me, especially in a movie like American Sniper, where there's so much going on. There's war, there's brotherhood, there's the PTSD. I had a scene where I'm in a hospital bed and he comes to visit me in the hospital after I was wounded. And of course, I've just got so much writing on this scene in my mind. This is the scene of the movie in my mind. And that's a really easy trap to fall into that you've got to watch out for when you lose perspective on where this scene fits into the bigger picture. And Bradley, in that scene, I remember, would come up to me and urge me to like let it go, trust the process. And it was always a nice reminder of it should be effortless. You shouldn't be pushing. You shouldn't be telling people what this scene is supposed to be. You should let the scene be what it is and stop judging which way it goes, you know. And it seems like such a basic rudimentary lesson in acting, and it is. But it's one of those that can really be easily forgotten when you're competing with Sienna Miller and Bradley Cooper and like Clayton Eastwood movie. You want to make sure every time you're on the screen, it pops, it counts, all this stupid noise that really has nothing to do with anything. In fact, it's the worst voice to listen to. It's like he got it and would always just gently remind you, you're safe, you're doing it right, so go for it. And then we worked together on Limitless and it was just the same. You could just trust that he's a fan of the process and it doesn't even have to be a fan of his place in the process. He's a fan of watching actors act and working through it. Do you have a way to efficiently get rid of the noise when you're in that headspace? Not really. <laughs> I mean, it's really different every project. I think every project has its noise and its demons, and it's all very particular to the actor, probably even the director or anybody in any department. The anxiety around wanting to get it right. I've been told by a few people that I should probably meditate. Meditation sounds great. I'll let you know if I do it and it fixes it. But um, <laughs> no, right now, I mean, it just really always boils down to trust. You've got to trust yourself and trust your instincts. That's not to say that you shouldn't do all the work in the world or prep. That's not to say you shouldn't think about the scene in a thousand different ways. But when you actually get there, the only way to do it right is to really just trust the process and let it go. If you try to do anything short of that or anything more than that, you're just going to be disappointed. And that's never not been true for me. On American Sniper, you said the process itself was so quick, like you were cast on Friday and flew out on Sunday or whatever you said. Yeah, that actually in and of itself kind of fixed the noise for me because you didn't have time. 
maybe that's it. <laughs> this is just going to encourage a bunch of actors to procrastinate their homework until the night before. <laughs> but yeah, that worked in a way that didn't give you a chance to do that. I mean, like, you know, I could argue if I went back and watched American Sniper, I'd see so many different opportunities to do something differently. I think that's always going to be true. But as far as throwing yourself into something without second guessing it and trusting yourself, you're absolutely right. That is an example of one where you just didn't have the time. And everybody on that movie was pretty much in that position. And that's pretty much how Clint works. One take, on to the next. You don't have enough time to psych yourself out about it, which maybe is a stroke of genius. I have no idea. But that would happen even on Limitless. Limitless, Greek, The Right Stuff, those are ensemble shows. Limitless, we had a core ensemble of me and Jennifer Carpenter and Hill Harper, really. And Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. But like, other than us four, it was mostly my character's show, you know? He narrated the whole thing. He's the one taking the pill. He's kind of the Bradley Cooper surrogate from the movie, you know? So it was more of a one-man show than a big ensemble show. And that worked in the same way. You know, I think the first couple episodes, you're still trying to control what this character is going to do. How's he going to think? Wouldn't this be cool? Wouldn't that be cool? And it's not that those aren't valuable. They are. But once you get into an episodic shooting schedule, 13, 14, 15, 22 episodes in, you don't have time to second guess yourself. You're really acting on instinct. And in a lot of ways, at least for my personal psyche, does help. Because it doesn't give me time to be like, well, what, but what about this? What if I try, you know, and just start second guessing things that don't need any more analyzation. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old. And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com slash a moment of your time. So with Limitless, it was a procedural, but it was a different kind of procedural. But did that change the approach to the show? Because it was, again, a different type of show than you'd done before. Not really. I don't think I've had a show that my strengths and comedic sensibilities and just personal quirks were so like Craig and all the writers on Limitless snapped into that real quick. They were able to write to my strengths and really custom tailor a character that wasn't me, but we all just were on the same page with who he was and how he acted. And that happened really fast. So that was kind of the thing that was most fresh about that show for me, less so about the structure of it. I think, honestly, I worried a lot that it was going to be kind of your standard CBS procedural when I was deciding, deciding, I was going to say deciding whether or not to take it. I didn't have a choice. I wanted it really bad and they let me do it. <laughs> but in my mind being like, oh God, am I going to be happy on a show like this? Am I going to be creatively fulfilled on a show like this? If it is just another genius helps the FBI case of the week show. And it had those elements. And I think that this was a deliberate choice on his part to hire writers that were from episodic television, not from procedural television. Craig had a background in procedural television. He had worked on elementary and medium. And I think he was the case of the week kind of guy that knew that with this added element of a pill that makes you a genius and opens up all these doors of wish fulfillment. And this should be so fun and meshed in this guy's personality, you know, like all these Gen X and cultural pop references compared to the kind of icy opportunist that Bradley's character was in the movie, the show having so much more real estate, like 22 hours, more or less would need comedy, would need levity and the fastest way to that 
was through the heart of gold of this protagonist. So I was really thrilled that there was always a balance with the procedural elements and the episodic elements. I mean, you had the storyline of Eddie Mora, Bradley's character from the movie Limitless. I think he did like six episodes, which was awesome having Bradley come on and do that much. And then there's some supporting characters that had these season-long overarching storylines, like who killed Rebecca's father and Sands' origin. But, you know, all those things were kind of spinning those plates simultaneously, which made it feel a lot less procedural, even though there was always a case of the week. The unique approach to how that case was going to get solved filtering it through the mind of this lackluster 20-something made it super fun and unpredictable, which was huge. I mean, it's honestly might be why it didn't survive. Maybe this had a little bit more pizzazz than uh, whoever was in charge was comfortable with. But um, I'm super proud of it. I love that show. And I was like over the fucking moon when I got the second episode and realized what direction we were going. That it was like a lot less procedural. We would almost kind of poke fun at the procedural format and parody it in a lot of ways. If it had kept going, where do you think Brian Finch would be? Oh my God. I have no idea. That would be so crazy. But I know some loose plans we had for a season two included him being at the top of the pile of the Zone Task Force, which I think honestly was a CBS move <laughs> to ensure that if I got sick, there were still parts of the show that we could film because if something happened to me, there was like nothing we could film. That show just, especially towards the end, was Brian heavy all the time. So that might have been a more uh, strategic move as a fail-safe if something happened to me. But I don't know. What would Brian Finch be doing with NZT in the last four years of his presidency? I don't know. I hope something. He would have solved it. Oh, <laughs> uh, right? Um, no idea. be interesting to find out. I'd love to hear about Lady Bird because it's such a special movie. And I can't imagine just what was it like being a part of that cast and that crew? Lady Bird is one of my favorite movies that I've been a part of, but also just in general. I love that movie. It's so specifically from the time that Greta grew up and Greta's, I think, maybe a year younger, older than me. Um, So it's right on track with my kind of, albeit truncated high school experience with the cultural references and just being alive in that time. But it was special from the page. This is based on, and I only know this because my girlfriend at the time went to the same all-girls Catholic school in Sacramento that Greta did. Oh, no kidding. Super crazy. So I'd hear all these stories from my girlfriend at the time about St. Francis. I hope I'm allowed to say this. I don't know if Greta's come out and said specifically it's based on St. Francis. Maybe it's not, but it totally was. So St. Francis is an all-girls Catholic school, I guess, in Sacramento. And my girlfriend at the time had gone there and would tell me stories about it all the time. Just, you know, general stories from her high school experience. My ex-girlfriend, she's an actress. And Greta, you know, is an actress and director, producer. So she was always kind of the star from that school. And so then cut to a couple of years later, I get the script for Lady Bird written by Greta. And I'm reading it, realizing this is an entire story that takes place in St. Francis. So it was this weird kismet kind of connection to that whole story in Sacramento and Greta specifically, that was kind of mind-blowing. But the scripts, apart from that connection, was just so cool and so fun. And again, just the people involved. I mean, that was it's Greta, Sersha, even Beanie. I know Beanie's like a household name right now. Getting to be on set and work with Beanie and seeing what nobody knew yet was amazing. She is hilarious. Such a genuinely warm person. You know, Scott Rudin produced it. I mean, it was really a special independent movie. It knew what it was. Greta knew what it was. Super fun to ad lib. I played an algebra teacher. It got me looking up algebra. I hadn't thought about algebra in a long time. (laughs) And there was a story there where they were like, so we're just going to need you tomorrow. This is like before my first day of set. They always say, we, we totally won't need you to do this, but just in case, which translates to like, you're definitely going to be doing this probably more than you can even anticipate. But they were like, just look up the foil method of algebra first, outside, inside, last, you know, just so you can maybe if we need you to in the background, again, you won't have to do this, but just in the background, look like you might know some algebra. And luckily, I've worked on enough stuff to know that that's a sounding red alarm that you will be full on doing algebra in the back. And if you don't, you're going to look stupid. So I, the night before, like crammed, like I was taking a math test, all these different formulas and things that I could write and say out loud that would make me look at least somewhat qualified to be teaching in a classroom. I got there and they were like, all right, man, 
anything you know would be like so helpful right now because we're seeing you in the background like a lot. And I'm just like, yeah, I know. They can't teach you that in acting class. That's just working on a lot of projects when they say, you probably won't need to know this, but just in case, you'll definitely need to know that. Have you had a time where you didn't know that lesson yet and you didn't show up knowing what you needed to know? Oh my God. You know, yeah, probably. You know, that's why Greek was really great. Greek was kind of like a giant acting class for those technical mistakes that you just can't learn without hours and hours and hours on set and familiarizing yourself with the dynamic of how sets work and what things will fall through the cracks because an AD has got so much bigger problems on their plate. They need everybody to rely on their own department, you know, and that kind of team effort of like show up and play, I'm sure I made some of those mistakes on Greek. And honestly, those mistakes result a lot less in you looking stupid because if you look stupid, the movie looks stupid. They'll just cut you out. (laughs) That's usually the punishment for like, oh, you didn't teach yourself algebra. You're playing an algebra teacher. You showed up with nothing. You just won't be in this part of the movie. Last year, you did a guest on What We Do in the Shadows, which was so much fun. Basically, you play a normal guy who has all of his past lives memories reinstated into his brain. Yeah. What was that like working with comedic geniuses and having such a fun role to play? What We Do in the Shadows, the movie I saw in theaters twice. I was already a fan of Jermaine from Flight of the Concords, and that was my first introduction to Taika. I think that came out in 2014. So cut to 2018. I'm at an audition for a different project, also a Scott Rudin project, I think, on FX. It was like my third audition for this other project before Allison Jones, casting director, asked me like, oh my God, would you cold read this small part for the pilot of What We Do in the Shadows? And I was like, oh my God, they're making What We Do in the Shadows? But I was like, it better have everyone involved. I was like, is Jermaine in it? And they're like, yeah, he's like writing everything. I was like, is Tyke doing it? Like, yeah, he's directing. So I was like, oh my holy shit. So I was like, yeah, of course. So I got just this one scene, which was from the pilot episode where I want to say it's the scene of like Nadja and Jesk walking down the road together. So the breakdown of this character was a totally boring guy, average, average dude. And I knew it was going to be shot mockumentary or documentary style like the film. So that was just kind of my mantra going into this cold reading at casting was like, don't try to be funny. You're not going to win. You're just not. You ham this up or you act this up even a little bit. It's going to be really obvious and it's going to be embarrassing. So my whole thing was just to play him as bland as humanly possible and as simple minded as humanly possible. And so I did that. I found out later that day that I got it. And then I think my first day was the next day. I'm at Paramount. So they sent me the script. And I don't know if anyone's seen the first episode of What We Do in the Shadows, but my character... In the first episode, he gets stalked by Nadja, one of the vampires, and she like floats up to his bedroom window to spy on him while he's masturbating in bed. So I had cold read for this <laughs> with only one scene that was very uneventful. <laughs> and then my first day on set with Taika and Jermaine is having to simulate sex on myself. Uh, Yeah, in a bed. And the way they did that, because this is all on a Paramount lot, they put a walkie-talkie in the bed with me where uh, Taika from Video Village was going to be walking me through the camera movements and giving my cue when I was supposed to start. So (laughs) he'd be like, all right, action. This is a terrible New Zealand accent. Anyway, he's called action. And then he'd be like, all right, the camera's coming to the window. All right, we see you. Get the phone. And he'd be like, you start going. Go to town on yourself. Go, go. This is on a walkie-talkie. I'm by myself. And the bedroom's like, go, mate, go. More teeth, more teeth. Yep, now be angry, angry. Now hate yourself, hate yourself. Walking me through all the different rainbow of emotions that would happen from one masturbating in bed by themselves. Until finally I broke and was like, call fucking cut. And on the walkie-talkie, he said, oh, mate, we cut ages ago. And uh, yeah, that was basically the tone you set for the the whole shoot. So it is a blast. And honestly, so there was that episode. And the next episode I had, I was in New York shooting another show. And they called and sent that script of the episode that you were talking about, where it's like, all of a sudden, you relive your past lives as a horse, as a maid in France, as Gregor, the warrior. I was like, how on earth, based on one episode of me just making small talk with a vampire and jacking off in bed, where they're like, you know what, what I bet he can do? Play like nine different characters all in display for us. <laughs> but it was amazing. I mean, those writers, they set such a tone on the set. You know, you're welcome to play. We're all having fun and kind of a fearless encouragement to just act as stupid as you want. They're great. I mean, I'll do that show as long as they'll have me. I love those guys. 
So when they do something like that, nobody calls to check to make sure, like, are you OK masturbating in bed on camera on day one? Not me. <laughs> I don't know what that maybe they just do. Listen, that's not to say there aren't some very strict guidelines for other actors, but not me. <laughs> no, they're basically like, you read the script. All right, here's day one. We'll see you at 10 p.m. On a completely different note, I am a Christmas movie freak because who doesn't love the holidays? And this upcoming holiday season, you're in Happiest Season, which is directed by Clea Duvall. And I don't know, I love Christmas movies. So I would just love to hear a little bit about what was it like getting to do a holiday film? It was great. It's wild to think that we were shooting that movie this year. We were filming that in Pittsburgh starting probably last week of January and then all the way through first week of March. And so it's a pretty fast turnaround, but it's great. That cast is insane. So just to be part of that cast was exciting. Kristen Stewart and Kenzie Davis and Dan Levy, even Victor Garber and Mary Steenburgen. And then Mary Holland, she wrote the script, I think, with Clea. She's in it. And Allison Brie. I mean, I could go on. Aubrey Plaza, it's, it's an incredible cast. I'm also a big fan of holiday movies like that. So to get to do that with those people is really great. I'm, I'm excited that it's coming out soon, I think. It was going to be in theaters, but then obviously you know, everything happened. So it's coming out this month. It's a great film. I guess we can't say much because it's not out, but... Go see it. Go all the way to your living room and see it. They make going <laughs> to movies so easy these days, you know? I know. Too easy, really. If you could go back and relive any day on set that you have had in your entire career what day would you pick to relive? Oh my God. Um, there's a lot. There's probably a few on Limitless. It should be clear too. Not relive because I want to go change anything, but to do the like our town kind of observation of a day. Yeah, probably a lot on Limitless. I had seen so many people I admire at that point be kind of top of the call sheet and the kind of sets they ran. And I've been really fortunate where all of those sets were ran so warmly. Shameless. It's a really warm set. Amy sets the tone. She's a great actor and a great person. Bill Macy sets the tone. Consummate actor, great person. The newsroom I worked on. Jeff Daniels, consummate actor, great person. So I had at Bradley, you know, all the all these examples of people who were kind of at the top of the pile on these incredible projects like Shameless or American Sniper, the newsroom. And ran such great sets because in so many instances, you know, it's some of the top build cast members that kind of set the tone. Actors can be moody, sets can be uncomfortable. And if you don't have an actor who gets that and is grateful to be there and understands how their part, albeit important, is still just one piece of such a huge puzzle, they can really set an uncomfortable tone on a set. And after having example after example of that done so well, under such pressure, like these huge tentpole shows like The Newsroom on HBO or Shameless on Showtime, you know, or American Sniper, like to get the opportunity to then put that to practice on Limitless was just a responsibility that I'll never take for granted. And I think lent itself to some really just beautiful memories of all the people that worked hard on that show. And then, you know, all those that I mentioned, I remember watching Jeff Daniels have just pages of dialogue to deliver on the newsroom and be like, good God, you know, I must have been 24 or something. And just watching him just ingest that and then pace around and get it down pat was just an amazing process to watch. And then cut to Limitless and I've got pages of dialogue where I'm supposed to sound like a goddamn genius, you know, like head of the FBI, you know, talking about scientific concepts that I've only heard described on Radiolab. So I had my own chunk of impossible insurmountable dialogue that then I got to like make this massive withdrawal of these little deposits from all those experiences. And so it was a really great show. I could go relive any day on the show and I'd be excited about it. So with all of those consummate professionals you've worked with, what would you say to ask a super stupid, cheeky question would be the right stuff for being in the entertainment industry? Oh, my God. <laughs> I think a love of the process. It can be a grueling process for every department involved. And if you don't absolutely love it, you're going to throw the whole thing off. I love the process. I've always loved the process since like waiting to go on stage on some dinky play I was doing in Texas just to see a bunch of grown people wearing costumes. Like what a bizarre process. I think the people that I've worked with that I admire the most and that have always set the tone for my personal work ethic are people that just love the process. My closing question that I ask everybody, what does it mean to you to have a life in storytelling? God, I never even really thought of it like that. 
life and storytelling. That's pretty awesome. Kind of means everything, I guess. I don't know. I feel like I'm getting really, really sappy right here at the end of the interview. I love sappy. Uh, okay. <laughs> I love a good story. The medium that I think we've all chosen as the medium to tell the stories, it's a huge team effort. I mean, I can't think of really anything where more people have to come together to tell a story in all the various storytelling mediums than a film or a TV show. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of jobs. It's a lot of hours. I just feel grateful to be a piece of it every time I'm able to be a piece of it. Jake McDormand, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, like I said, now I get to go just retire by doom scrolling the election. So thank you for the small <laughs> reprieve. Oh boy. I really appreciate it. Come back anytime because as you can tell, I like to talk about film and TV. So do I. I would love to. Thank you so much. Thanks. Hollywood Unscripted was created by Kurt Co Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis, with guest Jake McDorman, co-produced and edited by Jay Whiting. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. And we want to hear from you. Leave us a rating and a review. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. Maybe we can be better. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. Mm-hmm.